Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 9 and pick up at verse 23. Luke 9, 23. grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would feed us, that you would help our thoughts and our meditations be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, we pray that we would be we would be cut and healed by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. So there, there are passages in Scripture that are so central. They they become such a part of uh, the Christian life or the Christian conscience that. Um, we remember them as they're read, right? We remember Jesus talking about picking up your cross daily, but we can also become dulled to them because, um, because of their constant presence, right? But, but this, these verses and these words of Jesus should, uh, I mean, they should, they should, uh, just be the, the air we breathe, right? The, the sea that we swim in. This should be what we, when we wake up in the morning, our first thought should be, okay, God has given me this day in which he's called me to, to carry my cross. He's called me to, to deny myself. He's called me to do this. Usually we wake up and we say, how can I satisfy myself? How can I um, leave my cross alone? You know, how can I be you know, how pleasant is this day going to be, right? We usually approach our day and our first thought is, I'm hungry, and so, you know, let's satisfy that hunger or coffee. Um, but would that, when we woke up in the morning, we said, okay, another day in which, which I get to imitate my Savior, Jesus. I get to imitate him. And what did he do? Terrible, miserable, pain-bearing, self-denying, filled-with-love work. 
and we're called to follow after him. So th- that's, that's what it, I mean, that's what it means to be a Christian, right? That's what it means to be a Christian. Follow Christ. And, and yet we in our lives can be marked by so many other things other than following Christ. Um, if we were Buddhists, you know, what would mark our life? Our life would be a pursuit of emptying the mind. A pursuit of, 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 a, of a no space, of a zero zone, of, of um, thoughtlessness. Right? If we were Mormon, we would, um, we would avoid coffee in all of its ridiculousness. Right? We would do our good works, and one of those good works would be to wear what's right, to not do certain things. It's a works religion, right? And so it would be to, um, to build up those good deeds. Um, if we were Muslims, we, we would, uh, our first thought in the morning might be to commit violence in the name of jihad or to support those who commit violence in the name of jihad. That'd be our animating principle. The Hindu, well, the Hindu, you know, is like um, a choose-your-own-adventure book, right? You get to pick your god, and you can make up a new one if you want, and then you serve that god, right? And so you're, you're the god of the god that you intend to worship. Um, you burn incense to the, your own personal deity. That's what would animate us. Um, the evolutionary biologist worships, right? Worships his ideal view of progress, aims for the perfecting of man through, through time, through science, through influence. The American worships, the American um, builds up his wealth, right? That's what Americans do. What, what, would, what would other cultures say of us? I don't know. We, we play football and hoard our riches. The feminist. Feminist elbows aggressively for liberation. Freedom from the bondage of her what? What? Freedom from the bondage of her patriarch. No, it's not what I thought. That's a good one. Freedom from the bondage of her womb. Right? Isn't that what feminism is? With with abortion being their sacrament. The technology guru, right? Technology is a god that's served today. The, the, The tech guru thinks access and organization of information is going to bring peace and enlightenment. So he wakes up in the morning and he thinks, um, let's organize and let's perfect man. The artist sinks into the world of aesthetics. And that's a powerful world, right? The power of aesthetics and, and, um, and those emotional reactions to sounds and colors and to story and to narrative, right? The atheist, 
The atheist defies, or deifies reason and, and then rails against God. The, the person who follows the dictums of scientism shoots for immortality through research, through medicine. The average man has his own gods that he serves, right? The average man thinks that cashing the latest paycheck and going fishing with a cooler full of cold ones is about as good as it gets. What's my point in all this and beginning this passage this way? Uh, my point is this. Every son of Adam, every man, every person pursues some kind of salvation. Everybody's pursuing salvation. Right? There's a restlessness in the heart of man. There's a capacity in the heart of man to be a worshiper and pursue salvation. Augustine famously said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So that restless heart, and it remains restless until, until it rests in God. And Augustine was only echoing what Scripture says. In Ecclesiastes, we read that God has set eternity in their heart. In the heart of man, God has set eternity Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Eternity is set in the heart of man, yet there is blindness, there's unwillingness, there's rebellion that captivates every man until the point when he is set free in Jesus Christ. They have a heart with, so, so every person has a heart with a capacity for worship and a heart that is desperately evil, turning toward idols instead of toward the one true living God. Spiritually, every man must have the experience that the man born blind had physically. Though I was blind, now I see. Right? Spiritually, everyone has to have that experience. Man's spiritual blindness does not keep him from seeking salvation, though. It does not keep him from worship, right? His spiritual blindness just leads him down paths that end in worshiping something in the creation rather than worshiping his one creator, right? That's, so it's not, that, it's not that the atheists don't worship. It's not that the scientists don't worship. It's not that, that anybody does. Everybody's worshiping, and they've chosen to worship the creation rather than to worship the creator, so everybody, man is, is hopelessly religious. Hopelessly religious. Always worshiping. Always seeking for salvation. Always seeking for redemption. Always seeking to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody. So we could summarize the character of every man's relentless pursuit of salvation in the words of Frank Sinatra. And now the end is near. I mean, just think of these words, though. I mean, think of Frank Sinatra and his boastful gloriousness, right? Old crooner. Um, 
But think of these words, and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friends, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. You guys know the next line, right? I did it my way. I did it my way, right? Emphasis on my. I did it my way. Can you imagine going through your life, you're facing death, and that's what you want to say? I did it my way. What a, what a miserable way it went, right? I mean, at the end of your life, do you really think you're going to have a long list of things you want to boast about? Or do you think you're going to look back and have a long list of, of broken relationships and the, and the sins that, that afflicted your family and, and those things that you want to you confess? Yeah, I did it my way, but th- that was terrible when I went my own way. So man outside of Christ pursues his salvation on his own terms, in his own way, and naturally the God he serves only demands from him that which he's happily willing to give. It's easy. That God, whether it's the God of science or the God of materialism or the God of education, the God of fishing, the God of rock and roll or veganism or trees, bees, and puppies, right, does does not ever demand much. God doesn't demand much. It does not demand much because that God is merely a sacrament of that man's sin, right? It's just a figment of that man's sin, and so that God that rises from his sin is not going to take on that sin. That's his origin. That's that idol's origin. And that man knows that. But the living God, the God whose throne is in heaven, he is not the servant of any man's sin. He is holy. God is holy. God detests sin and the sinner who serves sin. God detests sin. That's what it means to be holy. For you you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Psalm 5. And so while the natural man seeks his salvation in serving a God who's at peace with his sins, the Christian serves the God who abhors sin. You serve a God-hating, you serve a sin-hating God. That's the God you serve. Sin was such a disgust to the Creator that He had to relent of His desire to wipe man off the face of the earth. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That should give you chills right there, right? 
Always that verse should give you chills. But Noah. Noah. Why? What was good about Noah? Nothing. Nothing was good about Noah. Only thing that was good about Noah was that God's grace was given to him. And this above all, this above all, consider this, sin was such a horror that God had to send his own son to die to make a way out of the utter catastrophe of sin. God himself had to condescend. God himself had to become so little. God himself had to become a a single-celled organism and grow in a womb and be covered in afterbirth and struggle and cry when hungry and grow and suffer the taunts of wicked men and then to hang from a tree dying. And that death, that glorious and horrible, that awesome and and humble death, that death on a cross of God's eternal Son demonstrates that fierce wrath God has toward sin. He did not even spare His own Son. The punishment fit the crimes. Sin was such a horror that that God, again, had to send His Son to die. We have seen and testify, wrote John, that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That, 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 That required that death. And we serve the God who poured out His wrath against the Christian sin upon His Son, Jesus Christ, your sins had earned for something for you. The wages of sin is death. That's what you had earned was death. And then amazingly, salvation given by this gracious God is a free gift. Eternal life is a free gift by faith in that crucified Son. The wrath of God has been satisfied and as a result, He removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. So, what shall we say then? What then? I mean, that's the gospel. That's the core of the gospel. Wicked sinners saved by the free grace of God. By faith. So what then? God has done all of this. It's glorious. God has done this work from beginning and He'll carry it on to the end. But how are we then to live the balance of our days before going to the place He's preparing for us to live in for all eternity. How do we live out the rest of our days? If God is angry at sin and has proven to us what He thinks about it, why are we so casual about our unholiness? Why are we so casual about our unholiness? Why are we so casual about the fact that we are still controlled, overpowered by lusts, by anger, by disdain, by bitterness, right? by impatience? 
Why are we not concerned about that? It's my personality, right? It's, you know, you should have seen the home I grew up in. You know, we've got a long list of excuses for our unholiness. Even though God has put his Holy Spirit within his children. Many, many people who name the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior believe that God essentially tells them the same thing that the false gods say to them. Right? Yes, go on sinning, that grace may abound. Grace must abound. Grace is the best part of God, so let's sin so that God can forgive even more sins. Go on sinning, that grace may abound. Many, many of us have lived for many days saying the same thing, banking. Banking on the graciousness of God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. He says, the essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. All of that holiness can be had for no efforts. No nothing, right? We have no fruits. We have little inclination to avoid serving our sins. We make very few prayers. We make um, very little progress. But hey, it's all good. It's, that's fine. That's fine, we say. It's fine. I'm baptized. It's fine. In fact, we say grace demands that I do not be scrupulous about my sins because to be scrupulous about my unholiness is to become a legalist and undermine grace. That's what we reason. God is gracious. And like the idols of the unbeliever, he does not make any demands of us. Any effort on our part would be God betraying his own grace. Now, is that true? Does God make demands of those whom he has saved? Does God make demands of those whom he has saved? Is the Christian God just like all those other idols that make no demands, or they only demand the things that you're willing to give? Right? Is God like those idols who affirm us in our unholiness? No, no, no. No, no. God makes demands. He makes claims. He does not leave us to ourselves. He is not an abdicating father, but truly cares for us. He saves us and then commands us. Right? He, we are drafted, so to speak, we're drafted into his army by his choice, and then we're not the general. We're not the commanding officer. God is the commanding officer. Right? We are born first and live for ourselves. Then we are born again and live for God. I 
Now, I have to say this again. Salvation is given as a gift from God by his pure grace. You cannot put God in your debt. You cannot be a good person away from his regenerating grace. You cannot make progress in holiness away from what he's doing. Scripture is very clear on that. But because our salvation is by God's pure grace does not mean that God cannot make demands of his children. Why do we have a tendency to think that way? Why do we assume that because salvation is this glorious gift of grace that God does not care how his children then live? It's crazy, but we all do it. We may think that way because we are unregenerate and don't know anything about the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. We may think that way because we've been taught by the church that brokenness Broken. I got to whisper it. Brokenness. Rather than repentance is the perfection of the Christian. We may think that way because um, we may think that way because we harbor hidden sins that we just love. And when God takes, you know, tells us to to deal with those sins, we're like, not, not, no. No, I love those sins. Those are things I, I, I have served my whole life and I will not give up. We may think that way because we have a spirit of entitlement that we've picked up from our culture. Right? We're just entitled brats. Right? We, we think that God saves us and then we're good, leaves us alone, and that's what entitled little brats think God you know my parents gave me dinner and now I'm going to treat them like junk we may think that living a God glorifying disciplined holy life is somehow a betrayal of the gospel of grace we may think that having any place for works in the Christian life is a betrayal of God's grace we may think that way because we've we've uh, jumbled up justification and sanctification, right? We just mixed them up into to one thing and then justification doesn't justify and sanctification doesn't sanctify. But what does Jesus require of those who have been called by his name, adopted into his household, redeemed from sin, and given the Holy Spirit? What does he require? He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We're called to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. Oh, man. Yay! Self-denial and cross-bearing. That's the life of the Christian. 
Everybody else is serving their gods, and they're just saying, you know, you can go after your sins. But our God says, deny yourself and pick up a cross and die daily. Die daily. Ryle says, we ought every day to crucify the flesh, to overcome the world and resist the devil. We ought to keep under our bodies and bring them into subjection. We ought to be on our guard like soldiers in an enemy's country. We ought to fight a daily battle and war a daily warfare. The command of our master is clear and plain. It's battle. It's a fight. And it's a fight primarily first against yourself. And the, own, your, the, the, the corruption that still exists in your flesh. That's the first fight. But then the flesh has these, these co-belligerents called the world and the devil. Right? That come along and, and tap into that, that inward enemy. Calvin on this verse says, the meaning is that none can be reckoned. None should think of themselves as a follower of Christ unless they are true imitators of him and are willing to pursue the same course. It consists in two parts, self-denial and a voluntary bearing of the cross. Self-denial is very extensive and implies that we ought to give up our natural inclinations, part with all the affections of the flesh, and thus give our consent to be reduced to nothing, provided that God lives and reigns in us. We know with what blind love men naturally regard themselves, how much they are devoted to themselves, how highly they estimate themselves But if we desire to enter into the school of Christ, we must begin with that folly to which Paul exhorts us, becoming fools that we may be wise. And next, we must control and subdue all our affections. There will be no end to our warfare till we leave the world Let it be the uninterrupted exercise of the godly that when many afflictions have run their course, they may be prepared to endure more afflictions. Is that the kind of life that marks our church today? Is that the kind of life that marks the American church today? Does it describe us? Does it describe your individual walk before God? Is that how we would describe our joy? To imitate Christ, not as... You know, it'd be, it'd be one thing to imitate Christ if Christ was, you know, a theonomist who picked up a sword and started chopping off the heads of all the kings of the earth. 
that we could get behind. You know, that would be thrilling. I mean, we would have to learn swordsmanship and we would have to really sharpen both sides of that double-handed broad axe sword. Right? And we could get behind it, but Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, die! Jesus says, deny yourself! He says, take up the cross upon which you're going to die. That's what he says. Is that our joy? Is that our joy to fight ourselves, to be constantly fighting, to be constantly self-examining, to be constantly scrutinizing our, our, our thoughts, right? To be constantly repenting, to be constantly Um, going to God again and saying, God, I have failed you. Please forgive me in the blood of Jesus Christ and help me to subdue my flesh, which at times seems so powerful like I have no control over it. Or rather, you know, how great it would be to to rewrite the Constitution of America with Jesus and win and win and win and win and win and win. There is only a shave of difference between us and our idol-adoring neighbors. There's just a a shave of difference. It's like we've jettisoned these verses here because we want to remain respectable. Why, why is it that many of us, why is it that I desire a gospel without a cross? Why, why are so many happy to serve their idols? Uh, we want a God who is easy to serve. We want a God that bows down to us and our sin and our sinful nature. We want a God that allows us to Uh, you know, serve our sinful, murderous pride. But that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is one where we die and are crucified and deny the self, just as Jesus Christ did on a cosmic scale. The Christian faith is one where In fact, if you're in Christ, the flesh has been crucified. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so it is no longer our master. And so we are free to live a life of, and get this, we don't often do it, but we have been made free to live a life of self-denial, of crucifixion, and of dying. We've been made to do that. We've been given everything we need for that sort of godliness. Will we put and force our expectations upon God as all the idols of the world would allow? Or will we hear what Jesus says here? Again, Ryle says a crucified Savior will never be content to have a self-pleasing, self-indulging, worldly-minded people. No self-denial, no real grace, no cross, no crown. That's what he says. Listen to those adjectives, self-pleasing, self-indulging, worldly-minded. 
Do you have concerns that you're self-pleasing? Nod your head up and down vigorously like this. Okay? Right? That you're, you're self-indulging? That you mollycoddle your, your affections? Right? That you go all effeminate when you're looking at those images on your computer? But you love that sweet effeminacy, right? You love that sweet softness of your sin, that control. Worldly-minded, right? What distinguishes us from the world? What, you know, is, let's, let's visit all your neighbors on your streets and, and we're going to ask them, okay, who are the Christians on this street? Your neighbor's going to know it. By the way, things they see you engaging in, by the, 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 the way they see you tr- talking to your children and disciplining them or not, or are, are they, you know, are they going to, or are they just going to say, look, they, same people, same idols, same cars, same devices, same mindsets. But the Savior. But Jesus Christ was crucified. Jesus Christ died daily. Jesus Christ suffered. Jesus Christ was a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. Right? And we demand our lives be lived on flowery beds of ease. We demand a life without illness. A life where our loved ones never die. A life without self-denial. A life without the loss of jobs. A life without the presence of enemies, right? Without wind and waves and hurricanes, without the loss of friendships, without loneliness. We expect that God would give us a life where we weren't lonely because loneliness is terrible, right? With, uh, a, we expect a life without loss of reputation, without financial hardships, without giving up strong drink, we, we, without giving up satisfying retribution. How could God take that away from us? We, we live a life expecting to be uh, without having to give up the secrets of harbored bitterness. How many of us have lived each day for years being bitter? And that's sort of just been what gave us something to do every day. I can be bitter toward my relatives. I can be bitter toward my friends who have betrayed me. I can be bitter toward my husband, bitter toward my wife. And that is what gives you, you a vocation every day. <clears throat> we demand a life of following Jesus without following the manner of his life. That's what we do. We want a crucified Savior hanging from a tree, but to keep that, keep from our own crucifixion and death, right? We want Him to do it, but we don't want to participate. We want to save our life and not lose it. Bonhoeffer again, if grace is God's answer, the gift of the Christian life, then we cannot for a moment dispense with following Christ. But if grace is the data for my Christian life, 
It means that I set out to live the Christian life in the world with all my sins justified beforehand. I can go and sin as much as I like and rely on this grace to forgive me, for after all, the world is justified in principle by grace. I can therefore cling to my bourgeois secular existence, my middle-class suburban existence, and remain as I was before, but with the added assurance that the grace of God will cover me. It is under the influence of that kind of grace that the world has been made Christian, but at the cost of secularizing the Christian religion as never before. The antithesis between the Christian life and the life of bourgeois respectability is at an end. The Christian life comes to mean nothing more than living in the world and as the world. In being no different from the world, in fact, in being prohibited from being different from the world for the sake of grace. The upshot of it all is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on a Sunday morning and go to church and be assured that all my sins are forgiven. Uh, yeah. I need no longer try to follow Christ. For cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, which true discipleship must loathe, loathe and detest, has freed me from that. This is the cheap Christianity that we have grown up in. Right? Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life, and he meant it. And, and those who are his will do it, and they'll rejoice as they're doing it all along, though it'll be painful. Right? The desire to be holy, Jonathan Edwards said, is the distinguishing characteristic of the Christian. The desire to be holy do you think that is what marks the Christian today? Is that what marks your own lives? Do your children see you fearing God, repenting of your sins, making choices of what you consume as a family based upon whether it's wicked or good? Right? Do others see you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do others see you merely hungering and thirsting for the things of the world? I mean, is comfort really... is is peace, comfort, and being left alone your highest ideal? Because that's not the life of the Christian. The Christian does crazy things like has children and fills their homes with chaos and sinners and picks up their cross daily to serve those wicked children. I love my children. They're wicked. And I'm loving them by telling them that. From the pulpit. <laughs> but that's what the Christian does. That's self-denial. It's obeying God's commands. Be fruitful and multiply. And what comes with that? Man, I've started having thoughts about my children. I mean, it, it, Anna's graduating from high school. And I'm like, she's going to be, you know, she could be married within years. And I'm like, I don't even want to think about the trials that God will bring to her through a relationship with another person. She is going to go through so much pain. It'll be glorious. There's, marriage is glorious. It's good. But it is hard work. It is sanctifying, right? It is all those things. And I'm like, 
I don't want, I don't want that risk. So we are arranging our marriage next week. You okay with that? You know what I'm saying, though. This is obedience to God's commands comes with all kinds of death, all kinds of self-denial, all kinds of risk, all kinds of having to depend upon Him, right? It comes with all these difficulties. I mean, just being godly as a teenager in your classroom comes with the risk of all the other students thinking you're an idiot and being shunned. And that's painful for a 14-year-old to be shunned, right? But say one thing that's godly. Tell your friends not to say, take the Lord's name in vain at the lunchroom, and suddenly you're cast out. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's the life of dying daily. That's the life of picking up your cross. You have to be the one who says, don't blaspheme. Because that's what Jesus would do. Is there any element of these hard words of Jesus that scars your life? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. What does your self-denial look like? Having the third child? Having the sixth child? Having the eighth child? Having the tenth child? Condescending to love an enemy? Or somebody who hates you tenderly? Standing up to your husband's sin, wives? Standing up to your wives' sins, husbands? Or is self-denial even a characteristic of your life? If you take stock, what works do you give yourself to that aren't meant to just satisfy your flesh? Does God get to tell you what to do? Or is it more or less your flesh that is always the thing you follow? This is what I want to do next. Divorced from what God has commanded you to do or what is faithfulness or what He has set on your life as the marching orders. Now, Here's the, here's the thing, the Christian, the Christian rejoices to live a life bounded by God's law. The Christian loves to be there. Why? Well, it means suffering. It means standing out. It means being different. It means continually saying no to the flesh, which, you know, what did, what did Owen say? Um, what was that phrase that Owen said? That the, the rewards of sin, help me out. Somebody's got it. There are rewards in sinning, right? The pleasures of the flesh are the rewards of sin. Right? But, but, but the Christian, bounded by God's law, yeah, it means saying no to the flesh. It means uh, following the path of a Savior that clearly suffered. But that is to be our highest joy. Note what Jesus says last. When we live for ourselves and do not have as our joy Obedience to God, it means we are ashamed of our Savior. It's nothing less than being ashamed of our Savior. 
Peter was ashamed of Jesus when that servant girl asked him if he was one of his, his disciples. Peter, in his denial, determined he would not take up his cross right there. That was too much of a cross to take up. He was going to put the cross down and say, no, I don't know Jesus. He wanted an easier path, right? He wanted a path that didn't require painful obedience, suffering, and reproach. And so much of our disobedience can be chalked up to this problem. Will we suffer shame for following Jesus or will, be ashamed, or will we be ashamed of Jesus and follow our sins so that others might not think poorly of us? Will we put Jesus first or will we put other people's opinions of us first? Will we obey Jesus or will we obey ourselves? Now when Jesus comes in his glory, stop Focus your minds and think of that. When Jesus comes in his glory, when he returns to judge each man, he comes and he judges us according to our works. When Jesus comes in glory, the breath will be knocked out of us if we have only and ever lived to please ourselves. Christian will lament at that point that he lived so weakly as a Christian and played around with the delicacies of this world so often and didn't deny himself. He'll, he'll regret that he didn't give himself to obedience. So do not be ashamed of Jesus. How? How? By living a life of holiness when your flesh, the world, and the devil would make you feel ashamed of that way. Live a life of the pursuit of holiness. Live to be pleasing to him. Live as you were made to live when you were born again. Be ashamed of your sins always. Never allow the world to make you ashamed of your holiness. Never. Never allow the world to do that. Never allow anyone to make you ashamed of your holiness. Never do that. Jesus said... If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Make that your pursuit. 